everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Hussein Fancy about his book on the Muslim cavalry employed by the Christian king of Aragon during the Middle Ages, entitled The Mercenary Mediterranean, Sovereignty, Religion, and Violence in the, in the Medieval Crown of Aragon. Hussein, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark, for having me. This is really an honor. Well, it's our pleasure. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Wow, that's a great question. Well, I started off life as a writer and not as a historian. And I sort of backed into this career. It was a bit of a surprise, I think. I fell in love with two extraordinary teachers in graduate school who taught me a little bit about how to read documents and how to care about them. But for much of my life, all I wanted to do was write books. I have to say that love really comes across in this book. You have a very real engagement with the archives. You talk about turning the uh, the brittle pages, and there's a real exploration that takes place. What was it that led you to the archives and to this book? What was it like going to the archives? No, what was it that brought you to that point where you were in the archives researching this book? What was it that led you to this topic in the first place? You know, in some sense, it was it was luck. It was it was camaraderie. It was it was friendship. It was colleagues leading me in the right direction. But ultimately, it was a footnote. It was a footnote in an article by a scholar by the name of Robert Burns, Jr., a great scholar at UCLA who passed away a few years ago, uh, which made mention of these genets. And once I started pulling the thread, I just couldn't stop. It seemed such an extraordinary and astounding story that these Christian kings who were self-identified as crusaders, who conquered a great deal of Islamic territory, would also choose to have as their personal protectors or as members of their army, Muslim soldiers. It was a sort of question that was begging for an answer. And, um, and that's what really got me going. It was one tiny thread. There was also something just marvelous about being in the archive. As you describe it, you're right, but it was some, there's something sensual, something very material, uh, something completely, completely soothing about the labor of going every day and turning page after page uh, growing accustomed to reading a handwriting, uh, coming to know the scribes through their hand, uh, coming to know the archivists who are incredibly <coughs> valuable. I don't think I could have done any of this work without a great deal of collegiality. Um, you know, I can, I can think of at least one day in the archive where I had four or five people hanging over my shoulder, helping me to read a document. And, uh, I spent three years in that archive, and it really, uh, it was a life-transforming experience. I was wondering if you could explain a bit why it was that such a combination was unusual. Could you tell us a bit about what the Mediterranean world, specifically the Western Mediterranean world, was like at that time, and how it was that you had this Christian-Muslim interaction in the first place? You might want to just move back a little bit and think about Mediterranean studies or even Iberian studies itself as it stands. By and large, scholars have been trained in European languages or in Arabic. There tends not to be a lot of overlap. We talk about the Mediterranean, we tend to still speak of it as the Northern Mediterranean, the European Mediterranean, very rarely North Africa. And even then, there's a tendency not to use Arabic material. Partly, this reflects the fact that there isn't a lot of archival material in Arabic. Much of what existed in North Africa was destroyed. But in European archives, there's a considerable amount of Arabic. 
uh, by quirk of fate, by also uh, some study, I came to this project with just the right combination of languages. And, you know, with some good help, with some good advice, I was able to really put Arabic, Latin, and Romance languages to good use. I was hoping the book would be a model for a new kind of Mediterranean study, certainly medieval Mediterranean studies, where people worked in a comparative way. So in some sense, methodology was, was, was the methodology I was using was new-ish and, uh, and shedding new light on the way we write and think and talk about the Mediterranean. At least that's one of the things I hope people walk away from reading this book, that they feel, particularly younger scholars, encouraged to develop the requisite skills to look at the Mediterranean in new and different ways. I certainly know that I'm training a handful of young graduate students now who will will be far better at this than I am. <laughs> um, so when we take that larger Mediterranean into view, one of the things that the book argues is that the Al-Muhad Empire, the Al-Muhadun, this uh, empire that stretched and the largest, most powerful empire in the Mediterranean in the 12th century stretched across North Africa and into Spain, what we call modern Spain, is often maligned and overlooked. People have not taken it very seriously. It's only in the most recent generation that a handful of Spanish scholars um, have started to overturn our view of what had been characterized as blind fanatics, as religious fundamentalists. Um, these very sort of loaded and modern terms applied to an entire empire. What the book argues in some sense is that in the wake of the collapse of the Almohad Empire, the Almohadun, Christian European states not only seek to fill the vacuum of authority, but also look very seriously to these caliphs of North Africa as models for the kind of political and religious authority they might inhabit in their competition with their noblemen, in the competition with the papacy, in some surprising and, uh, and, and really kind of fascinating way, to me at least, uh, we find kings like Frederick II uh, and certainly Alfonso X of Spain and all these Aragonese kings with whom I'm obsessed and, uh, and writing about, looking to North Africa and looking to the memory of the Almohads as a model of authority. So that in some senses tells, tells the story or tells, it sort of sets the context for the book a receding Islamic empire that was incredibly powerful and an emergent series of Christian states that are also looking to this empire among other places, but looking to this empire as a model to emulate. Um, that raises the question though, why were they looking at the Islamic state as a model and not say the uh, contemporary Christian states, such as the Holy Roman empire or uh, right. what was happening in, in France or, or even say England or yeah, you know, they absolutely are looking to the papacy, which is, you know, the most administratively powerful region. They're looking to the French as competitors. They're looking to the Castilians as competitors and also powerful kings to emulate. Um, you know, much of the records that I'm looking at are actually built on the model of the papacy. Um, <coughs> and they're certainly looking to the memory of the Holy Roman Empire as well, to the memory of Frederick II as Sicily re returns again and again in this book. Sicily itself is particularly interesting in this regard because Sicily was also looking to North Africa, particularly the Fatimids, um, and then later the Almohads, but this trade and commercial relationships between Southern Europe 
and North Africa create this kind of intellectual back and forth, this world of translation, of competition. Uh, certainly, if we just look at material culture alone, if we look at the movement of ceramics, or we look at the movement of textiles, uh, we look at the movement of artisans building uh, buildings, we immediately, I mean, just to stand in Palermo at the Capella Palatina, uh, you immediately get a sense of the porousness of these boundaries and the ways in which ideas moved back and forth. It's not to say that this was an ideal uh, cosmopolitan world in the way that we might romantically imagine or that everyone got along. But these ideas were certainly in circulation through translation. Um, part of the appeal of looking to the Almohads is the Crown of Aragon had a very large Muslim population that they were speaking to, ruling over. They had a design over North Africa. They had a desire to, to um, set up colonies in North Africa. Certainly at Tunis, they had a desire to conquer, control directly or indirectly. And throughout the entire 13th and 14th century, the Aragonese kings, who, who technically are, are kings of northeastern Spain, have their designs on Sicily as a place to ground their empire. Um, they marry, they imitate, uh, and then they ultimately conquer Sicily as a way to gain control over the Mediterranean. And in this Mediterranean world, the most powerful people of memory were the caliphs of North Africa, the Almohad caliphs who have disappeared. So why were they looking to all these examples? What were their needs in the 13th century? What were they hoping to achieve? Well, one thing they're hoping to achieve is to assert their authority over their own people, over their own noblemen. They no longer want to see themselves as equals vis-a-vis -vis their, uh, their own nobility. But they're also looking, I think, to some degree to circumvent the papacy, the other great universal rival, even as they're claiming for themselves a sort of universal authority within their own lands. Their, their desire for power is hampered on, on all sides by the church uh, and by their own noblemen. They also are experimenting to some degree with these ideas of power, these ideas of law and authority in the newly conquered realms that have large, large populations of Muslims and considerable populations of Jews. And it seems to be in these places, at least I argue in the book, in a, in a realm like Valencia, that we see them acting most like Holy Roman emperors. And that, that was something that fascinated me. Why would a space like Tunis or why would a space like Valencia be an ideal place to pretend to be the most Christian of rulers? How... Borrowing ideas is one thing and gaining inspiration is one thing, but it's another to reach out and actively employ uh, Muslims as soldiers within your forces. I was wondering if you could take us back a bit and explain who the Jeanettes were and how they came to be employed by the medieval crown of Aragorn. Thanks. Good question. I mean, the book itself it starts off sort of like a mystery. What does the word Jeanette mean? How do we know who these people are? How did I find them in the archive? And it's, it's worth, in some sense, following this thread. The word Jeanette, which comes to us in modern Castilian as Jeanette or Jeanette in Catalan still, means something like horseman in the simplest sense. In the early Middle Ages, it meant a lightly armed horseman. It didn't mean a Christian or a Muslim. It just meant someone who rode in a particular way what was peculiar about these Jeanette soldiers of the early modern period, these were the conquistadors as well. So the sort of 
uh, afterlife of this word and of these soldiers is quite broad, um, was that they, they rode with short stirrups. They were lightly armed, and they rode in a fashion like the modern jockey. They could gallop. And this gave them a distinct kind of advantage in warfare, warfare particularly that was dominated by heavily cavalry in Europe for a thousand years. Um, the genets is, uh, in, the, in the 13th century, the degree that we can understand who they are from the archives, from, from the Latin and Romance archives in the Crown of Aragon, were these lightly armed soldiers coming from North Africa that served in the armies of the Crown of Aragon and also in the court of the Aragonese king. Um, they brought an innovative style of riding, one that was remarked upon, one that became an object of fascination. Uh, their saddles, their swords, their lances, their shields all seem to be objects in circulation. Uh, they appear to have been used in sort of a performative way in the Crown of Aragon in the 13th and 14th century, whether it was parading with the king to make him look uh, particularly regal, or at least on one occasion, I was able to uh, find evidence that they would they would fight in front of them. They would have jousting competitions. Um, but, you know, all this is very fragmentary. We only we sort of have hints of this in the, in the archive. Um, honestly, what we're talking about here in terms of what we see after three years of research that I pulled up was about 2,000 records, 2,000 bits of evidence uh, in the archive itself. Um, but to your other question, so that's who they are. The other question is, so the larger question that you asked is, how did these soldiers come to be employed in the crown of Aragon? How did they, uh, how did a Christian king come to the idea of employing Muslim soldiers in his armies and uh, as his personal protectors, even more surprising? That's really the question that drives the book. My answer, the way I try to address this in the, in the book, on the largest theoretical level is, why are you surprised? Um, what is it about the way we think about religion, about religious interaction that makes this encounter surprising. In some sense, there's a great deal of precedent for these kinds of relationships. If we go right back to the Roman period, but also right through to 12th century North Africa, if we look at the Holy Roman emperors themselves, there is this long tradition of having religious others or slaves as personal protectors. And then some, to some degree, that's what's being invoked in this tradition, I argue in the book, that it wasn't um, it wasn't so much that they were mercenaries. It wasn't so much that these were soldiers for hire, but that they were ultimately part of a performance, a performance of what authority or imperial authority in particular looked like in the Mediterranean, in the pre-modern world. It looked like being having soldiers of another religion as your slave soldiers, as your personal protectors. There was something particularly empowering about this. There was something particularly empowering to Frederick II, uh, and it is in fact his grandson, Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor's grandson, who makes his way through a sort of um, series of just amazing historical leaps into the crown, of, the court of the Crown of Aragon and becomes the first recruiter of genets for King Perla, the Aragonese king. Um, so that's one thing. We shouldn't be surprised that there's a lot of precedent. But what it means, I think, is another is another question that occupies the book. Does it mean that for most people, 
religion didn't mean anything, that they were willing to cross religious boundaries for money, or that ultimately religious commitments were not meaningful. Part of the argument of the book is that this is often how religious interaction is treated in medieval Spain, that Muslims, Christians, and Jews interact with one another. It's evidence of their um, very modern, often, ability to set their religious beliefs aside uh, for the sake of financial need, for the sake of pragmatism. Uh, what I argue, or at least suggest in the book, is that we should be open to other kinds of readings, readings that I call that are, uh, the, these kinds of readings, these sort of ways of thinking about religion, I say in the book, are ultimately secular derived ways of thinking about religion. Um, we should think about it differently. And what I suggest across the course of the book, the, 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 certainly the, the central chapters, is that we should then instead think about Christianity differently, or certainly Christian political theology, the way politics and religion intersected in the minds of these kings, is something that accommodated the possibility of having Muslim soldiers in their personal protection as an expression of their religious authority, not an expression of their secular authority alone. That's something that I think we need to talk about more, but is one of the arguments of the book. that If we take the political theological ideas of Christian kings in the 13th century seriously, then we might actually find a surprisingly different way of thinking about the reason or the motivation for recruiting Muslim soldiers. On the part of the Muslim soldiers, I, I'll give you a, a chance to ask a question here. Yeah, actually, that was my question, is that yeah. we, you're, you're talking about the, the sort of the motivations and, and, and value of it from the perspective of the employer. What about the uh, soldiers themselves? This is really, this was the hardest part of the book for me, because this is for which I had the, the smallest amount of evidence and really uh, needed the, the greatest creative work. And much of it boiled down to uh, dancing around documents and being as playful and creative as I could with them um, to try and find a voice for these soldiers. And of course, this is the most tentative part of the book. And you know, as I say very clearly, it's my aim here is only to ask why not. It's not so much to argue definitively that uh, these soldiers believed one thing or the other but to say, why are we excluding certain ways of thinking about them? What I try to suggest, or what I try to argue in the book, is that there is a good amount of evidence to suggest, one, we know for, for a fact that these soldiers were recruited, and certainly their leaders were recruited, from a band of mujahidun, from a band of holy warriors who had come uh, to the Iberian Peninsula in the late 13th century. We know from their names, we know from their contracts, we know from uh, the very fact that they are these these Jeanette soldiers, that they seem to come from one line of North African Berber soldiers, Marinids in particular, um, who had come to Spain to protect Muslims. Many of them were political exiles, but they had come to Spain for the purpose of jihad. And within a handful of years, they're immediately in the employ of these Christian kings. So the question really at this point is, should we see their service for a Christian king, particularly if they are people who identify as Mujahidun, as a betrayal? And one of the things I try to show in the book and try to suggest in the book is that we should, in fact, be open to this making sense, that we should 
think about the possibility that they were mujahidun in the service of a Christian king. There's nothing either in the Islamic record or in the documentation that suggests they saw themselves as merely mercenaries, as sort of unscrupulous traitors uh, to the faith. But they may have seen themselves as Muslims to some degree, as people who were upholding uh, faith, or at least um, uh, not fully uh, setting it aside, as we might think modern modern concepts of religion work. And for uh, them, there was no conflict between their faith and their service to a Christian king. One could certainly argue that, or we should be open to the possibility that there were conflicts and there were also consonances. There were also ways in which it worked. Uh, it was messy, but they saw themselves somehow uh, still within the realm of of possibility. And there were tensions. As I, as I described in the last chapter of the book, there's a rebellion in which uh, it appears to me, at least I argue from the documents, that they feel like they've overstepped their bounds. And that's what really struck me, that they find themselves in conflict with another army of Muslims. And it's at that moment that the soldiers, not the leaders, which is interesting, the soldiers go to the leaders of these, soldier, of these Jeanette troops and say, we can't do this anymore. We need to leave. We can't be fighting other Muslims. Uh, I think the direct quote of the soldiers is, not for all the money in the world would we do this, which is a striking kind of rebuke of a mercenary logic. Um, you you bring I up an interesting distinction, distinction, though, which yeah. is you talk about the soldiers and the leaders. When the kings reached out to these soldiers, did they reach out to them as uh, individuals or did they recruit them as bands? To the degree that we can tell they're recruited as bands and uh, as groups of somewhere between two and five hundred underneath a captain. And the crown of Aragon itself seems to assign I mean, it's a it's a hundred year history that we're looking at. So it, 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 the sort of the institution evolves, but at some point they assign uh, a sort of supreme leader over all of them. This is someone who's typically a marine prince uh, from one or two uh, royal lines that are living in exile in Iberia, and they seem to these princes seem to sit at the Aragonese court and rule over the soldiers and negotiate on their behalf and. Uh, and sometimes even ride into battle with them, as far as we can tell. Uh, we do have their contracts, and we do have their contracts for negotiation. As I argue in the book, what is striking about these contracts for negotiation is they almost always repeat the same clause, which is, we will not fight other Muslims. You can use us to fight Christians, but we will not fight other Muslims. And that's something that came back to me over and over again as a striking sort of limit. Um, and one that seemed to have been maintained in practice. The Christian kings didn't really seem interested in using these soldiers in other capacities, and these soldiers also weren't really interested in fighting other Muslims uh, directly for a Christian king. Of course, they were involved in their own intracommunal communal fights, um, and uh, at least for part of the history of the Jeanettes in, in the larger, uh, you know, the, or these Mujahideen, these holy warriors, at least for a large part of their history with, with the Nasrids, with the rulers of Islamic Spain, uh, they are in rebellion. They're fighting against them. They're trying to establish their own state. So they, they seem rather unscrupulous politically, but they don't, in their service for a Christian king, they don't seem to be interested in fighting other Christians. They sort of, sort of like iron filing, suddenly line up like a, before a magnet, not you know adhering a little bit more closely to what we would think of as a kind of normative religious behavior. So if they are 
not permitted to be employed against Muslim uh, in, uh, leaders or uh, entities. What then were they employed as? Were they used against the king's subjects? Were they used against his Christian opponents? And, and is there any evidence as to how they were employed specifically, say, on the battlefield? Yeah. Were they sort of seen as sacrificial lambs or were they sort of seen as an elite? Right. Great question. The story of the book starts off with the Aragonese invasion of Sicily. <coughs> and this is part of their gambit to become rulers of the central Mediterranean, I argue, but also heirs of the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, they marry into the family of Frederick II, as I said, and they also seize the island where he had his throne. And I think uh, much of what's happening in this early part of the history is an imitation of them. He also had Muslim soldiers as his personal protectors. And I think that's one obvious antecedent, direct antecedent. There are others. Um, as a result of their invasion of Sicily, they're excommunicated by the papacy and uh, the crown of Aragon is handed over to the French king um, or his nephew. And uh, France invades the crown of Aragon. The Aragonese king uh, is also facing a rebellion among his own subjects. And at the battlefield, at the battlefront where the French army is arriving, uh, it appears, at least uh, from what we can tell, he can muster about 100 soldiers to his defense, 100 knights to his defense. In other words, he's about to be overrun entirely by this French crusade. It's at this moment that he turns to these Muslim soldiers, and they come in a rather large number. Uh, and they're able to hold the French invaders off until at least uh, the Aragonese navy returns from Sicily and Aragonese soldiers return from the invasion of Sicily and, and fight the French off. So the very first use of these soldiers that's documented is um, on the battlefield is against foreign troops, French troops in particular. Uh, over the course of their hundred year history, they're going to be sent again to Sicily. They'll be sent to North Africa on occasion. Uh, they'll be fighting against the Navarrese, they'll be fighting against the Castilians. So one use was in foreign theaters of wars against mainly Christians. Uh, there, there are exceptions, but they're very few. Um, the exception in the Islamic case is against Tunis. Um, the other use of these soldiers is internally, that they're used to suppress rebellions. And this, I think, is the more interesting part of their use. A Christian king using his Muslim soldiers to suppress his own Christian subjects. And as I argue or show in the book, that one of the remarkable things that he allowed these soldiers to do was essentially kill with impunity. They were sort of immune from all law as it stood, as far as I can tell in any case. They're immune from the laws that governed other soldiers. They could, uh, and certainly other Muslims in the crown of Aragon, um, they could take captives, sell captives, uh, they could dress as they liked, they could carry swords. Uh, um, and as far as complaints come from Christian villagers that these soldiers are um, tearing up their lands and, and taking their families ransom, the king mostly seems to ignore them uh, and ignore the claim complaints, that is. Uh, and it's here that I think that they're most terrifying. Uh, we do know something also uh, of how they're used. Among the most remarkable documents I found in doing this research was a multi-page letter written by um, the captain of the Knights uh, of the Hospital, um, I'm sorry, of, um, of uh, Templar Knights, 
who had ridden into battle alongside these Jeanettes and uh, were really, at least this, uh, this uh, master of uh, the Templars, seems deeply impressed by these soldiers. And they do uh, fight as a vanguard. They are, while heavy cavalry are sort of slowly coming along into the battlefield, while uh, footmen are coming along, the Jeanettes are told to charge ahead. Um, and what they do is they charge and run away. They sort of uh, create havoc. They charge towards um, a front line. Uh, they disperse it. They shoot arrows. They immediately turn around and shoot arrows as they're riding away, causing a sort of chaos in their wake. And that seems to be the key to their success and the key, the strategic reason that the um, Aragonese kings like them um, is that they introduce a new strategic element. Uh, also in this battle, uh, we're told that they, these Muslim soldiers take the bulk of the losses um, in terms of uh, men who fall in battle, but that's still a surprisingly small number. I want to go back to a point that you made when you were talking about how the King of Aragon was excommunicated because of his employment of them. And it points to another interesting element, which is that while you're describing that the relationship between Christian and Muslims in the context of the Jeunettes is one that is perhaps a bit more difficult for us to understand given our modern sensibilities it was also one that not everyone in the Christian world necessarily agreed agreed with. It seemed. Did this create a lot of problems for the for the crown in terms of their efforts to uh, advance their throne uh, within Spain itself? I mean, I, I just want to make one correction. They weren't excommunicated for their use of these soldiers, but it certainly did raise eyebrows. But it only raised eyebrows among their enemies. And uh, if we just take the case of the papacy alone. Um, the popes both, you know, looked askance both at Frederick II for having his Muslim soldiers. They certainly make the same complaints, and the French do uh, as well, of the Aragonese having these soldiers. I think the complaint of the French legate at this first battle that I was describing, where the Jeanettes come to his defense, is that is in essence, if it weren't for uh, him selling his soul to the Muslims or to the devil, he wouldn't have succeeded in this battle. But over the course of this history. Uh, both of these groups, the French and the papacy, show themselves more than willing to be okay with these kinds of alliances, as long as they serve, uh, as long as they serve the the mission of of Christendom. Really, for the papacy, it, it boils down to that: that as long as the greater good is somehow being served, uh, these kinds of uh, accommodations, let's say, are fine. Uh, we see this when it comes to their permitting smuggling. We see this when it comes to their permitting slave trading, uh, trade in general with North Africa. Uh, the papacy is remarkably flexible when it comes to Christian soldiers serving in Muslim armies as well. Um, and again, this is not to say that they are, uh, that, that religion was somehow just a variable, that uh, people were willing to set it aside when it was uh, convenient to set it aside and, and invoke it. It was convenient to invoke it. I think this is a common problem in the way we write about medieval history or certainly think about medieval history and i would even argue that it's it's a problem the way we write about religion today um but um they this was all invoked in a sense of accommodation for the greater good a, a sense of what was in in the best interests of christendom 
So the criticisms were more born out of circumstance convenience than any sort of deeper principle that was practiced as well by the critics themselves. Exactly. Exactly. How was it that their alliance and their employment was able to endure for so long? I mean, you described, as you've mentioned already, that we're not talking about years or even just a couple of decades. We're talking about an entire century in which the Jeanettes were employed by the Crown. Right. I think one of the things that was remarkable to, remarkable to me in writing this book is, is exactly what you said. The endurance of this tradition, uh, not only does it begin in the, in the Roman period as a kind of habit uh, and extend right through the early modern period, and we might even say that in the modern period, uh, somebody like Franco, the dictator, was also invoking and thinking of this kind of tradition of having foreign or uh, troops of another religion in this personal protection. That is was utterly surprising to me that I could speak of really a 2000 year tradition to which this particular 100, 100 year history belonged. Um, but uh, mu- much of the, the sort of success of the Jeanettes has to do with the political stalemate that is the 13th and 14th century. That uh, the rump of Spain, Nasser Granada, is still uh, under the control of Muslims, uh, in part because of the infighting between the Aragonese and the Castilians, or you might even say the French, the sort of long wars between them. They were never really able to coordinate to push the Nasserids out of Spain. The Nasserids themselves <coughs> were really adept also at playing off all the players in the Mediterranean, not just these Christian states, but they were also looking to North Africa and working with the different North African states. So it created this sort of political complexity of the period, which I think is often overlooked, particularly in North Africa, created the possibility for some amazing kind of diplomatic alliances, really complicated ones. And one of them uh, is certainly uh, sort of this this complex diplomatic and political space allowed for there to, to thrive for a hundred years, a group of marine exiles who sort of controlled the the zone, let's say, between the crown of Aragon and Granada as a kind of free state. They're not really named that. They don't have their own kingdom, but more or less, there is this buffer state that exists between the crown of Aragon and the Nasserids that is neither under control of neither fully um, these Jeanettes who sort of float back and forth between the Nasserids and the Aragonese, playing them off each other as well. Um, when that political circumstance disappears, almost immediately the recruitment of Jeanette's disappears as well. The, these princes who are living in exile in Spain are either recalled back to North Africa, uh, the Nasrids, after a, a particularly kind of infuriating period of political negotiation, decide to stop dealing with these marinid soldiers as well. And then the Aragonese essentially stop using them after this, this sort of late 14th century. They do continue to exist. There's a wonderful book by a, you know, a brilliant colleague of mine in Spain, Ana Echeverria, uh, about uh, you know, the afterlife of these kinds of soldiers in Castile in the 15th century. Many of them, of these sort of princely families, seem to have converted to Christianity, but continue to be in the court of the Castilian kings, at least. And you know, I didn't work on Castile. Castile has very poor records for the Middle Ages, so... I imagine something similar is happening in Castile as the crown of Aragon. Uh, but in any case, in the 15th century, or uh, even, uh, yeah, in the 15th century, but she may even go into the 16th century as well. But in the 15th century, 
there are a number of Christians, of converts to Christianity, of descendants of these soldiers who continue to serve as the personal protectors of the Castilian kings and who continue, interestingly, and this is the part of her book that I just found utterly thrilling, continue to dress like Muslims, continue to dress like North African soldiers, even though they become Christians. So what conclusions can you draw about medieval Spain, uh, medieval North Africa, and the Western Mediterranean world during this time that, you know, that, that it can inform our understanding of the world today? Those, those presentist concerns are certainly with me, and I, I'm not shy about them. It's something uh, I think historians have to grapple with. One of the arguments of the last chapter of the book, and admittedly, it's a, it's a hard chapter. It's a sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a theoretical addendum to the book in which I sort of uh, try to make a claim for moving my field in a new direction, is that we are still bound when we look to the Middle Ages by a series of secularist assumptions. And by secularist, I don't just mean something like liberalism or just by the assumption uh, that religion doesn't matter, but rather by secularist, I mean the kind of the assumption that religion and politics are separate domains and even opposing domains. And I think across the political spectrum, from liberal to conservative, those values or that way of seeing the relationship between religion and politics is actually very consistent. It's one of the reasons I'd argue that the cultural wars have been so particularly tenacious but also why, within the historiography of medieval Spain, a subject like convivencia, a subject of whether or not Christians, Muslims, and Jews tolerated each other or not, whether they lived in peace or not, seems to still be an obsessive question. Why, for instance, even in the study of medieval Spain, we're constantly asking the question you asked. As a scholars, we're constantly asking, what lesson can we draw from the present about this? To meet the our need to ask that question, our need to look even to medieval Spain to ask that question tells me more about the way we think about religion or the way we would expect or want religion and politics to function than the way it actually does either in the present or in the past, if that makes any sense. In some sense, the book as a whole was merely an attempt to shake up the terms, to move beyond that opposition between religion and politics and to move beyond uh, um, uh, uh, let's say, uh, 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 secular ways of describing the world and look for ones that are more native, at least to the 13th and 14th centuries. That's why I use the expression political theology in the book. I don't mean here to invoke some of the more swish theory of late, which I'm critical of in the book as well, but rather I'm thinking or interested in the ways in which politics and religion are not discrete categories. They're overlapping uh, categories for, for much of what's happening in my text, and I think the present as well. So one thing I would say that I would really hope people left the book with is not a sense of how to make sense of either the past or the present better, but rather a sense of what questions to be asking, right? When we start off the book with a sense of, or and this is how I end the book as well, but when we start off by asking the question, how in the world could Muslims be personal protectors of a Christian king? We have already brought a whole series of assumptions about the way we think religion and politics work. We've already made these kinds of micro decisions about their relationship to one another. 
And part of what the book says is, hold on a second, there are some first questions that need to be asked, or maybe this is the wrong kind of way to approach this subject. But if we continue to divide these terms, religion and politics, we're only going to be able to turn up a couple of answers. These soldiers were either traitors to their faith or they were ignorant of their faith, right? That they refused to believe it. Those might be the answers. Those might be the right ways of reading this relationship. But the book is saying they're not the only ways to read this relationship. You need to show me more. Uh, you need to prove to me that they are mercenaries. And at least in the book, I'm trying very hard to say that. I think that mercenaries is not an adequate term to describe these soldiers, at least fully. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I was really fortunate this past year to be um, a Rome Prize Fellow at the American Academy in Rome. And I Congratulations. Thanks. It was, it was really it's a wonderful honor. Uh, and I spent much of the year working in the Vatican archives. One of the things, and again, this is, uh, this is the, the wonderful thing about working in an archive. Uh, you know, uh, archives are becoming increasingly digital, but I don't think I could have done my work without colleagues. And one of the remarkable things about spending three years working in an archive is that eventually somebody gives you a great idea for a next book project. Uh, and it was indeed one of the archivists at the Crown of Aragon Archives in Barcelona who told me one day about smugglers' confessions sitting in the Vatican Archive. Uh, in the 13th and 14th centuries, the popes invited smugglers to come to Rome to confess the sin of smuggling uh, and receive an absolution. And we have much of that paper trail still in the Vatican uh, of Aragonese, but also uh, merchants coming from all over Europe. Uh, to confess the sin of smuggling to North Africa. So I've been working through those records. And uh, that research is part of a larger book project on criminals in the Western Mediterranean, on alliances between Christians, Jews, and Muslims to, uh, to smuggle slaves, smuggle goods, uh, to get around certain restrictions. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm playing with it still. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm saying. But if I were to put the cart before the horse, what I think the book will argue is that these men were actually, uh, these criminal merchants were actually instrumental to creating a kind of far more ossified uh, late medieval Mediterranean in the sense that they were deeply invested in the boundaries between Christians, Jews, and Muslims, maybe more than others, partly because their business thrived on there being a kind of consistency. Uh, if you are trying to smuggle, uh, you need to know and you need to defend to some degree the boundary between you and the other uh, in order for your smuggling operation to work. At least that's the premise so far. Uh, I'm about a third of the way into that book and I'm still seeing where it's going. Another... Go ahead. Yes, please go ahead. I was going to say it sounds like a fascinating book. It's, I, I hope I hope so. <laughs> it's it's certainly uh, you know obsessing me right now, and, and, the, and the the stories are are really great. As usual, I'm more interested in the characters than anything else. Um, another book project I'm working on at present is called uh, The Eastern Question. Right now, it is a long intellectual history of uh, Western European views of Islam. Um, uh, it starts in the present. And it moves backwards in time through the 7th century. Uh, and the gist of the book is actually sort of, uh, right now in any case, as I understand, it is almost an ahistorical one. What I'm trying to argue here is that intellectual history uh, still has a place and a force that 
the real encounters between Muslims, Christians, and Jews are almost irrelevant to the history of um, Western views of Islam, Western European views of Islam across this period. They've been remarkably consistent. There are certainly periods of time of Islamophilia, the 17th century, the 13th century, the 19th century, where we can find Europeans lavishing or heaping praise on Islam, on Muhammad. Um, what really interests me, or what I'm arguing in this book, is that we should not see those moments of Islamophilia as any different than the moments of Islamophobia, the ones where Islam is being demonized. Uh, they, in fact, fit into the same kind of polemical pattern. Um, and that's a project that I'm actively working on now. I'm hoping to push it out in the next couple of years. I feel like it's a good time to be talking about these things and certainly stirring the pot. Well, they both sound like excellent projects. Thanks. Well, Hussein Fancy, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Mark. This is really great.